The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Continuing our study in our Lord's Prayer for his disciples and for us who would come to believe through their word. We're going to be focusing in John 17 on verses 6 through 10. So hear the word of God, the word of the Son of God to his beloved Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us to your Son before the worlds were made, before you called light out of darkness. You gave us to your beloved Son, Jesus, and thank you that you sent him to rescue us, and to make us his own, your own. And Father, thank you that he's given us your words through the words of the apostles. We pray, Father, that you would teach us more of the privilege that is ours to be those in whom the Son is glorified as we behold his glory in the scriptures and as we respond to it by receiving his words and keeping them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is praying for his people here, those who belong to his Father and whom the Father has given to him. In the first place, at the beginning of this prayer, he's praying particularly for the apostles in this who are overhearing this heavenly family conversation, as one scholar calls it. Uh, In one sense, we who live many generations later come into the picture more in verse 20 when Jesus says, I'm not asking for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us at that point. And yet, what Jesus says about the apostles in verses 6 through 10 He also says about us in that conclusion to the prayer. The apostles were given by the Father to the Son, as we've heard in verse 24. We read Jesus describing us in the same way, given by the Father to the Son. Distinguished from the world, as we heard. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for those whom you've given to me. So also in verses 21 and 23 and 25, Jesus says that about us. We're distinguished from the world. The world is seeing in us, in our unity, that the Father has sent the Son. Jesus has revealed the Father's word 
and the Father's name to the apostles. And in verses 20 and 26, he describes us as those who have received the word through the apostles and have had the name of God manifested to us. And as a result, just as Jesus says, the apostles believe that the Father has sent him into the world, so also we are those who believe through their word. So it's about the apostles, and their word is central here because through their word we hear Jesus' word, and yet Jesus' prayer for them here is really also a prayer for us. And he focuses on three things. The fact that the Father has given a particular people to the Son, And that the Son has given the Father's words to those people. And that those people have received and kept those words. The Father has given a particular people to the Son. You see that in verses 6 and 9. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And then verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. Is that a problem? And what about Paul's command to us, 1 Timothy 2? I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Is Jesus' prayer narrower than our prayers? Or for that matter, what about John 3.16 in this same gospel? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Is Jesus' prayer narrower than God's love? What's going on here when Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world? Well, of course, he's talking about the fact that there is a wider love of God and a more specific love of God. There is a general love of God, a common grace by which God treats every rebellious human being in this life more kindly than any of us deserve. But there's also God's special love, his focused love, his personal love that is invincibly aimed toward the eternal rescue of everyone who belongs to Jesus, everyone for whom he died, everyone whose name was written in his book of life before creation began. So that instead of the holy wrath that we deserve, we receive eternal life as a free gift, costing us nothing because it cost Christ everything. And that's the love that's being manifested in Jesus' prayer here. Jesus' prayer is an expression of that personal, particular, wrath-deflecting, eternal life-imparting love. It's personal. It has your name on it because his name is on you. There is a wideness to God's mercy. That's true. Jesus says about his father in the Sermon on the Mount, he sends his rain and his sunshine on the just and the unjust, on friends and foes alike. That's true. But there's also a narrowness narrowness to God's mercy. As unpopular as that may be in... uh, In 21st century America, where exclusion is a four-letter word, there is a specific personal love that Jesus is speaking of here. The people whom the Father owns, he gives to the Son to be redeemed by the Son's sacrifice. Jesus says back earlier in this gospel in John 10, he lays down his life for his sheep. And then he says to many of the people who heard him say that, 
those very words, he says, you are not my sheep. That's why you don't believe me. There's something very personal. People take offense at that. But you know, the more you realize how desperate your need is, the more you take comfort from that. It's humbling. But there's also great, great joy there. Because that means that you're secured, not by your best efforts, but by Jesus' perfect achievement of righteousness and atonement for you. You are God's treasured possession. Bestowed as his gift of love on the son of his love and purchased by that son through his great sacrifice. So when the frustrations and the tedium and the pressures and the everydayness of everyday life begin to press down on you and weigh you down and begin to make you wonder whether God is noticing or caring about the trials that you face day by day, let that be a signal to you to look up and remember that your high priest is praying for you at the right hand of God and you belong to him because from all eternity the Father gave you to him. You are a member of the gift people that the Father bestowed upon his Son. The Father gave particular people to the Son. What an amazing thing. Not because we're so good. Remember what God said before Esau and Jacob were born? The older will serve the younger. And later in the Old Testament, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Not because Jacob was lovable. but Because God is a God of abundant love. Well, Jesus also says in this little paragraph, the Son gave the Father's words to those people whom the Father gave to the Son. He says it in two ways. In verse 6, he says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And then in verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them. The name of God in Scripture, as you know, is not just a set of syllables, not just a label. At times, at least, God's name really stands for the person of God himself, powerfully present to reveal his glory and his grace. Consider the way that Moses anticipated the final sight of the temple when Israel would have entered, past Moses' day by a long shot, would have entered the land. Moses says, Deuteronomy 12, you are to seek that place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there as the place where your community, where the people of God will come to worship. And we know in the unfolding of time that was Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that place where God chose to put his name. So King Solomon, when the temple is dedicated, prays, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet may your eyes be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name will be there. But of course, ultimately, the name of God could not be contained in any sense in that physical dwelling that would be destroyed at the time of the exile. Ultimately, the name of God comes in the Son of God, As John reminds us in the second chapter, he didn't get it at the time, but later they understood when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, it was all about himself. He's the one in whom the name of the Father comes. And here in the prayer, this name of the Father revealed in the Son is our strong protection. As we'll see next time in a couple weeks, 
Jesus goes on to say, Father, keep them in your name as Jesus returns to the Father in heaven. And Jesus says, I've kept them in your name. The name of God is our fortress that shields us from the attacks of the evil one and from the unbelieving world. As Jesus brings us into the name of God, as we have his name revealed to us, Jesus gives us the words that the Father has given to him. Those strong, true words handed down to us through the apostles and through those who now teach us from the words of the apostles. Words are the way that Jesus reveals the name. Yes, when the name of God came into the temple, it was also with a visual display of overwhelming light and glory. But Jesus says here, he reveals the Father's name through words. Words feel weak sometimes. Ours is a visual age. Graphics are mighty. Words are weak, so we think. And Jesus, of course, did support his words with signs that were visible. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, the turning of water into wine, an announcement that the day of the great feast predicted in Isaiah 25 was happening. That was true. Jesus gave signs, but he gave signs to demonstrate his authority as the word. The word made flesh. The signs we see serve the words that we hear. And when, as we read in Luke's gospel, when doubters demand signs, Jesus bluntly says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not listen to God's words, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Words. The words in the Bible. Are they really that strong? A lot of your neighbors probably prefer the religion of John Muir, go out in the redwoods and enjoy things, or the religion of a 19th century reclusive poet, Emily Dickinson. Uh, I'm an English lit major, so I have to smuggle one of these in periodically. She's a great poet, not so reliable theologically as George Herbert. But she says in one of her poems, some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home with a bobolink for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. God preaches, a noted clergyman, and the sermon is never long, so instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. A lot of your neighbors would resonate with that, right? Now, finally, autumn is here. Why waste Sunday morning in an enclosed building hearing words? But Jesus says, as he gives words to his apostles to give to you and to me. He's revealing, he's manifesting, he's displaying the name of his heavenly father. That's where we come to know the father. Yes, God reveals his might and his deity in the created order, but only the words that the father's given to the son to bring to us can bring us into the father's favor and display the glory of his grace. What a privilege we have here that we can focus on these words. And not only as we hear them preached in the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day, but day by day we can focus on these words. I know we say it so often. You may get tired of saying, this is a great privilege to be here. It is a great privilege. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's a great privilege. And we say it so often because it's so true. And we also know the proneness of our own hearts, and your hearts too, to let familiarity dull us to the wonder of the fact that in this book 
we hear the words that the Father gave to the Son to give to us, to bring us life. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning of this prayer? Eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's only one way to do that in these words that reveal the name of the Father. Treasure them. Treasure them. Because as you treasure them, you show that you are the people that the Father gave to the Son. See, Jesus says, finally, God's people, the people that are God's gift to the Son, receive and keep the words. Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, and they have kept your word. In verse 8, they have received these words and have come to know in truth that I came from you and believed that you've sent me. God the Father is the giver. He gives his people to God the Son, and he gives his words to God the Son to give to his people. And God the Son is the giver. He gives those people the words of the Father and so displays the Father's name to us. What about us, God's gift people? What sets us apart from the world in the visible experience? What sets us apart from the world ultimately is that amazing plan of God in redemptive grace that writes our names into the Lamb's book of life. But how does it show? Jesus says we receive his words and we keep his words. Receiving is a very passive kind of thing. It's a very helpless kind of thing. It's a very humbly dependent kind of thing rather than active and ambitious. And that always rubs our grain the wrong way. We want to be active and obedient, active and, and in obedience. But Jesus makes the point that receiving the word is the starting point. What distinguishes Jesus' people from those who are not is not what we achieve, but first of all, what we humbly receive. He uses the picture in his parables of the word like seed going into various forms of soil, some resistant, some distracted, but some tenderized to receive that word. James extends the picture further when he urges us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That, that humble receptivity to listen to the word and have it search us and have it teach us to look away from our resources and our achievements to what Christ has done. Receiving the word, but also keeping the word. Jesus says in verse 6, they've kept the words. There's perseverance here. Despite forces that try to tear it away from us or to tear us away from the word, temptation, opposition, confusion, discouragement, we clutch it for dear life because it shows us that everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. And we belong to the Son. And therefore we're bound to Him. We belong in life and in death, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We are His because we belong to the Father. And we believe that the Father sent the Son to redeem us. You notice even here, Jesus is talking about his mission to redeem his people. We believe, they believe, these ones that you've given to me, they believe that I have come from you, that you have sent me. That mission that he's come to accomplish 
In the next 24 hours after he spoke these words, he would go to the cross to make you his own at the cost of his lifeblood. Receive the words. Keep the words. Cling to the words. They are our life. And so as we live in the words that the Father gave the Son to give to you today and this week in our studies and in our challenges and at home and in the library and everywhere else, we need to receive them humbly and we need to clutch them tightly by the grace and the strength that he gives so that they will convince us even more, even more deeply, the Father has given us to the Son and we are safe. We are secure. And we are bound, because we belong to the Son, to live that gratitude out of the safety that is ours because we belong to the triune God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus continues to pray for us at your right hand. Thank you that he knows us by name. He calls his sheep by name. He laid down his life for his sheep personally, particularly for us. Thank you for the words that he gives to us through the apostles, through their writings, through the scriptures. Thank you for the way he keeps us fast so that in the strength that his spirit gives, we also may keep fast his words. And fill us with wonder at the grace that you've given to us in Christ and reveal to us in the words that you gave him to give to us. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.